Welcome to the Disrupting Wellbeing podcast with Petra and Perks. This podcast is simple. We want to go beyond bubble bath wellbeing and think deeply about the world we live in and what it really takes to thrive. This includes things like activism at work, challenging the cult in culture, and of course, having brave conversations that lead the way in building a future of work that we want to be part of, including making benefits inclusive for all. So let's dive into our next episode. Welcome everyone to the Disrupting Wellbeing podcast. I am so excited today about the guests that we've got, um, just because of not only your career and your thoughts and opinions and all the things that we're going to discuss, but also because of your story. Uh, so I want to introduce uh, John Smith. Now he launched the world famous first artist agency in 1986. This goes back a little while. I'm interested in the, the context and, and history here. And with the England football team and Diego Mar Maradona as his first client, and has gone on to guide the careers of many of the nation's most celebrated players and managers. Now, he's got an incredible story that I only know a little bit about, so I'm really curious uh, today. He's got a book out, so he's an author and a commentator on a variety of sports, social, political issues, and I believe in 2021 received his OBE for contributions toward charitable work. John, welcome to the show. Good morning, and I'm delighted to be here, especially after that introduction. Um, Thank you very much. It's so, it's so good to, to have you here. Um, I, I'd love to know, what are you working on at the moment? What kind of excites you and lights you up? Tell us a bit about what you're up to. Actually, if you look out the window, I'm at my home in Marbella, so I'm, I'm working on my suntan at the moment. But it's, Beautiful. Um, no, I've, um, I'm involved in, uh, it's a kind of feast and family thing because I, I sold out a few years ago. And I get invited to uh, consult or advise a number of sporting and entertainment franchises and occasionally governments. And um, I'm currently engaged in working with the most wonderful person called Stella Smith at a, at a well-being company called Perks, P-I-R-K-X, if anyone wants to Google it. And it provides well-being support, help, um, for £49 a year, which I thought was remarkable in a, in a time when, um, well, let me backtrack a bit. I, some years ago, I was invited to join the board of Great Elmwood Street Hospital in the research unit. Um, and I, this was the late 90s, early 2000s, and I remember there being, I think it was 62% of the monies that came in went on administration. And I remember looking around and seeing how wonderful this hospital was and the work that they did and thinking 62% of this is going on clerical staff. We could be doing even better with more medical staff. And that number I know has increased sizably over the years. So for me, the NHS, and I've looked at this backwards and sideways over the years since my appointment, um, ended in the early 2000s and I have to say I think the NHS is completely broken it's there's no other organization I know that it's working of, of its original model which in the NHS's case was 1946 a very old school model yeah for a very modern age I think you know I, I don't understand that a diversity officer gets 110,000 a year in some cases and Nurses get £36,000 a year. I just don't understand that model. So I, I think, sadly, I, I love Perks because it offers people who can't afford private that little bit of support that, sadly, the NHS can't give them. If it was 62% going to admin in, in, in 2000 and plonk, it must be sizably more now. Uh, and, and so I'm... Uh, it, for me, I'm, I'm just doing a little bit. It, because I just want to, I want to give back a little bit. But I'd love to see a brave prime minister who one day stands up and goes, you know, we love it, but it's time. It's time to tear it up and redo the model of private and public medicine can work together. It's just, it seems to be offensive to the nation that you say anything bad about the NHS because it's wonderful. And at source, it really is wonderful. Mm. But the problem is trying to get into the source and get, I mean, I sadly, I did my back in the gym the other week 
And I was in the house on my own and I, I was in incredible amounts of pain. Oh, no. And I was afraid that if I passed out, I was feeling very nauseous. I was afraid if I passed out, then, you know, it could be dangerous. So reluctantly, after two hours of lying in a fetal position on the floor, not being able to move, I decided to call an ambulance. And they were great when they got there, but it took them over two hours to get to me. Now, I'm, I wasn't a life and death, mm. but they didn't know that really. I mean, I told the, the phone lady, um, the phone lady, that's not a good expression. The dispatcher? The, lady, the call the center the lady, person? <laughs> the call center, yeah. The lady who answered the telephone. Yes. And she was lovely. And I, and I told her, I said, it's not nice threatening, but and she said, well, no, because of your age, you, you are priority. Thank you. <laughs> but priority at two hours worries me. Yeah. So um, love the NHS, needed to be scrapped and started again. The problem is in our wonderful democracy, uh, governments only get five years at a, at a throw. And this probably is a 10-year turnaround. And only people like President Xi in China get that kind of time. And of course, so I, you're, you're talking about the, the physical health element, which of course is showing those waiting times and all of that. But we know now that the mental health uh, element as far as waiting times is just much longer and there's su such high level of need. I mean, do you think that bit just needs to be kind of ripped up and restarted as well? I think everything is, I think mental well-being is a relatively new right. uh, say support structure. We are, we're building a relatively new support, uh, support structure around mental health, and it's sizable. We've all suffered it. I grew up in a time in the 50s, 60s, and, and 70s when, when people didn't know how to spell mental well-being. Right. I mean, it just, it just didn't exist. No. You know, you, I get on with it, you know? So... And I think there's a lot of people that use mental health, probably a lot is the wrong expression. There's a few people who use mental health as an excuse, whereas there's a lot of people who I think need mental health support. And that should come in many forms of, of, of guises. I mean, I couldn't talk for 15 years. I had the world's worst stammer. And that produced all sorts of mental problems for me. What kind? What uh, showed up for you? I didn't think I was worthy of, of any success in life because I couldn't communicate it. In those days, don't forget, the internet didn't exist. So communication was, in the wor words of the uh, famous actor of my time, John Wayne, words are what we live by. So, you know, and I couldn't articulate those words. Yeah. So I became a very different child than a lot of the people around me. And I remember one of my headmasters was telling me off for talking like that and didn't understand the mental scars that that did to me. It's not my fault. I, I needed help and I needed help by somebody or people saying to me, if you can't communicate, we'll either help you communi communicate or we will help you through disfluency will help you through non-communication if you if you really can't and this headmaster said to me um told me off one day and he said smith you got a certificate when you're born you'll get one when you die and you can't talk you can't communicate so you'll get nothing in between nice okay and that was the support structure that i got that'll boost your confidence so yeah yeah Exactly. Um, scroll forward a few years later, and I'm now one of the patrons of something called Stammer, S-T-A-M-M-A, which is um, what used to be the British Stammering Association. And now there's help and there's support and there's mental well-being for people that can't communicate. And actually, it gives you an ecosystem where you feel you, if this part of life here is really difficult, yeah, you've got to face it. But there's a bit over here that is your well-being support place, which is lovely and warm and, and, and cozy. And that does, I think, so much for many people. If, if there's 100 people that stammer, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands more, but if there's 100 people that stammer, probably 80 of those get mental support, which gets them through to a better place. 
And I'm very proud of that. Uh, I'm just a very small part of it. But it's, you know, perks and stammer are very core in my life at the moment. There's, there's lots of fun things I do. I mean, I buy and sell football clubs. I do, I do you know, fun stuff like that. Sure. And, um, and, uh, and uh, I've got good access to the government so I can, I can shout and scream about how important sport is. And, and, and sport is. There's so much here that I want to kind of go into. I mean, the one piece is just around, so your story as far as stammering and, you know, the, the lack of self-belief, I guess, because of that environment. And then the flip side, bring us up to today, we could say that your career is about communicating, right? So you're, you're a social yeah. commentator. Uh, there's so many elements that you've done with teams and managers and, and of course, your, your charitable interests. Um, and so just talk me through, like, What's the journey there? I'm always interested in the messy middle. Like, how does somebody go from the stammering kid with no self-belief into impacting lives in the way you have? Like, what's, what, what are some of the key elements that, that our audience might uh, be interested in? Okay, the key elements yeah. for me. Um, my dad found somebody on the island of Jersey in the back end of the 60s who said he had a miracle speech cure. His name was Bill Kerr. And it was very expensive, and it cost about three hundred guineas, which is a, a guinea was a was a pound and a shilling. This was pre pre decimalisation, yeah. and it was a big lot of money for my dad to come up with. Um, but he booked me on this course. It's a two week course, and if I tell you, you just won't believe what I'm going to tell you. Now. So there were eight of us on the course, and none of us could talk. <laughs> And, I see a sitcom um, in my mind already. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I can, I can make fun of it now. I shouldn't do. I can make fun. It took us about three hours to say hello to each other. Sure. That was just it. And Bill was uh, physically six foot something, ex army major, very powerful personality, and he maintained that um, stammering was a fear of the back brain, so a bit like a horse. On a, on a course, gets to a fence, falls over it, is hesitant about going to that fence again. If it falls over again, it won't go to the fence again. So my brain had been wired in a way, as a, as a two-year-old apparently, where the speech is beginning to form in your head, mine had gone off on a journey of its own somewhere for no particular reason. He said, I'm going to reverse the fear. I'm going to make you more afraid to stammer. Ah, flip the fear. Then flip the fear. So I spent two weeks. Terrified of something else. <laughs> no, he actually beat me up. What? Are physically, physically. So every time me. you stammered. Yeah. We had to stand bolt up because he said stammerers are a bit meek, a bit mild, a bit afraid of society because they can't communicate. I want you to stand bolt upright. I want you to put the finger at your so body language it. showing confidence. Yeah. I want you to nod your head to every syllable and purse your lips. So you can't, it's nearly impossible to stammer. Mm. So I, my name's Jonathan, not, not John. I could never say Athan. So I never got, people used to say, what's your name? And I'd go, John. And it could take minutes. And I, eventually I'd get John out. And they'd go, hi, John. But that's that's not my name. Okay. He had to say, I want you to say Jonathan. And he made me say it. And if I if I stammered on it, he'd hit me. Hmm. Slap me around the back of my head. Punch me in the stomach. I mean, not lightly, but not not life threateningly. Sure. But enough to go, oh, you don't want to be doing this, Smith. You don't you don't want to be stammering. And he did it to every single person there. And there were two people in the class was a father and son. Neither of them could talk. And he, he bullied the son in front of the father and the father in front of the son. And I was cured in three days. Interesting. And we, we went back home. We was, it was seven in the morning to seven at night. We went back to this little place in Jersey afterwards with a guy who ran the little guest house, was in partnership with him. And you had to talk like you did in front of Bill. And this young kid stammered when he ordered tomato soup. And the guy took the bowl of soup and poured it over his head. I mean, it was just So I'm getting dramatic. the impact. Like, I'm getting we the... We all, all, came, all came away cured. And, now, and I'm, I don't know 
You equate that to 2023, Petra. I know. I don't think that's what would work these days. But look, I'm an example of, and at the end of the treatment, this man hugged us all. He was crying. We were crying. He'd given us a life. And he made us call him every Sunday for a year just to engage. And he was lovely. I owe him everything. And yet, you know, it's difficult to say that I love somebody who beat me up, but he gave me a life. I didn't have a life before that. And that's profound. And I'm wondering if there was ever any ongoing trauma because of that. Because it was so dramatically successful. You had um, to be on board. I yeah, guess. I mean, I mean, my dad was with me the, for, a, for a while. And we had a day off during the two weeks. And we went into town in St. Helia. And I could absolutely never say P's and D's and hard consonants. Just couldn't do it. And we went into a shop and dad said to me, let's buy a polka dotted. Could you say that? And I went up to the counter and I said, do you have a polka dot? Do you have, I'm still speaking quite so, do you have a polka dotted tie? And the man looked at me and I cried. Oh. He didn't know what was going on. And my dad was crying. Oh. And I'm like, and the poor guy in the shop was going, what's <laughs> I better have the tie. No, we don't sell these. Go away. (laughs) Um, But that was it. The emotion was, you know, for me, communication was so important. And my dad was really good at it. He was was a good speaker. He he was a great, he used to play guitar and banjo. And he played his banjo and he used to sing and everything. I enjoyed all that stuff. And I couldn't do any of it. So at 15, it was a world changing event. And so I can see the skill development here, but how did the confidence, did the confidence just organically kind of come the more you did things that scared you? He taught us stuff, Petra. So the first week was a bit of a, excuse my language, shit show. You know, we were getting beaten up a bit and (laughs) we were learning. like, where the fuck am I? Exactly. Well, yeah, I was going to say that. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, Except we didn't use language like that in those days. Of course. (laughs) So the second week, he rebuilt us. So he taught us stuff. I mean, one of the best things he taught me, he said, when you're in a one-to-one with somebody, and if you want a job, and the guy from the the company is interviewing you, and he's intimidating you because he's sitting there looking at you, he said, look back. Don't ever look away. Because most people, you know, when you talk, I'm doing it now, I kind of, you know, Mm-hmm. Look away. Is look at the bridge of his nose or her nose. Mm-hmm. You will never blink if you do that. But it looks like you're looking in their eyes. You can't really see this on here. I'm looking at the bridge of your nose. Sure. I, I will. I can do this all day, Petra. I will never. And I'm quite good at using it manipulatingly or in a manipulative manner. And after a while, the other person always looks away. They always do this. You think. Got it. Almost a power play, like of confidence and of like owning the space. Yeah. And he gave me all sorts of tips. When I do speeches sometimes, he loved pauses. Which takes confidence uh, to hold the pause, doesn't it? Yeah, because Petra, when you're talking, a two-second pause is only two seconds. But if you're the one pausing the process, it seems like forever. He said to me, pause and calm strength, something that I've had put on my, I had this done as a 70th birthday present to me. It's P-A-C-S in old Arabic, Aramaic script, because wow. that's the message that he gave me. Mm. Um, and so I do speeches and then I just stop for a minute. And it really engenders the audience because they don't quite know. Has he forgot what he's going to say? Yeah. Is he about to say something? But everyone goes, and you've absolutely got them again. And you nailed the message, so, that final message. Yeah. So this is those are the sort of things that we learned. And it, it was life-changing. So, yeah, it sounds like it. And then it sounds like you continued to use the kind of action, confidence, and skills to then develop into the, the career that you had. Um, the other piece I wanted to pick up on that you touched on earlier was around... Some people 
using mental health as an excuse. And I think that the, like this, these are the types of topics we want to touch on on the Disrupting Wellbeing podcast because people were quite p- politically correct these days of like, oh, the younger generation or people need duvet days or time off or this kind of, you know, cotton wool kind of vibe, right? Um, but at the same time, we know that social media, we know that young people are experiencing things that are much bigger kind of um, situation than, than we did when we were younger, right? So I'm just curious yeah. about your thoughts. Like, what do you think are some of the ways that maybe mental health is used as an excuse so that we can kind of be aware of them? Yeah, I, I, I do. And, and it's a bit like changing attitudes through life. I'm, I'm in my 70s now, so I've, I've seen it from, from the 50s. Sure. I was very young. Well, no one talks about this stuff. Yeah. No one talked about anything. Um, it was just pre-war as well. I mean, it was only wow. seven years from the end of the war. Um, so there was a whole austerity. Life was completely different. And we won the war. So we, you know, and we had to be strong and we had to be this, but we had, and then I had my stammer, which, you know, sort of flew in the face of all of that. Right. Um, so I've, I've seen it through there and I've come from that era. So I find mental health, and I've seen a lot of people struggle with their mental well-being over the years, in particular in sport. Right. Because this dictates everything in your body. You know, you, you line up people at the 100-meter final on, at, on the Olympic Games, on the day of the Olympic Games final, those eight men or eight women in the 100 meters final Everyone is as fast as the other one. I mean, take out Usain Bolt, he was an exception. Sure. But they've but all been training the same amount and investing exactly. in their They're bodies. With it. They're within that much yeah. of winning. A hair's breadth. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a, it's a millisecond. Yeah. All of it. But the guy or girl who honestly believes more than anything else that he or she is a winner, I am going to win. I'm, I'm, there's no decision here. I'm going to show how good I am. I'm going to win. Wins. And who can handle the pressure, right? So like on the day, right? So it can keep that while the noise is around and the competition is next to you. I've always been. I mean, I I actually ran for Great Britain as a kid. Okay. Because I couldn't talk. Right. My form of self-expression became Ah, so that was your early interest in it. I was very quick. Yeah. I was very quick as a kid. I was running 100 yards, shows you how long it was before it went metric. Sure. I was running 9.8 seconds at, um, at 14. So um, I couldn't talk afterwards. I couldn't celebrate other than going, yeah, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> but at least it gave me some self-respect. But I, I remember my coach uh, saying at the time, a really tough old Scots guy saying, on, on training, do it again, do it again. That was shit. Do it again, do it again. And it, it nearly broke me up, right? Because the physicality and my head were not in the same place. There was I struggling with speech on one side, feeling very weak and mild, and this side of me being physically not abused, encouraged, very thin line. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure I would use so- the word encouraged. I'd say pushed, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, to, to, yeah. to reach your potential, which has its benefits. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was only after my treatment from Bill Kerr that I, I realized that actually there's a, there's a coordination between physical well-being and mental well-being. Right. And so it was only just beginning to dawn on me, and I could see some of my fellow people. And I, I was in the era of Seb Coe, and Dave Bedford was, was my training mate. Uh, he was long distance, I was short distance. And, and we all started talking about, you know, the resonance of, of our mental health. We didn't call it mental health. What did I call, we called it uh, my mindset. Mindset, the, fitness. Yeah. 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 So all of those things, but nobody ever did anything about it. We didn't have mindset coaches. Right. Visualizing. Say, Fucking do that again because that was shit. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah. Was, <laughs> that was it. So it's been an interesting journey watching my children um, and their friends going through problems at school and people saying, ah, mental health. And I'm trying to think, actually, that particular thing is not a mental health issue. That's something you've got to be strong and just get through. However, that person's problem needs 
needs a wraparound, needs someone to care and understand and take them to a place. Too many people, this is a really unforgiving statement, and I, and I, and I apologize if it offends anybody, but I think too many people get instantly diagnosed of, uh, with, oh, he, she's got ADHD. Yeah. Maybe they've just got a rampant, energized body and mind. That was and me. Six after hours in school people. doesn't work for you. Yeah. yeah. No, I was after after my speech cure. I wanted to take over the world, and I probably had ADHD. What would have been diagnosed as ADHD because I was so energized, and I was jumping around and I'm doing this and everything. And people go, oh, ADHD. No. Yeah. I was perpetual motion. That's what I was because I wanted. I wanted that. I wanted the world. I wanted the world to know me and see me. Look, I can talk. I'm going to drama school. I was shared that, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be an actor. So, I, yeah, I think it's a really interesting dichotomy. Mental health issues, mental well-being, which isn't necessarily a mental health issue. It's a mental well-being. It's a health. As much as going to the gym, it's a mental well-being. Do you meditate and get yourself into the right place? That's not a mental health issue. That's a mental well-being. Um, normal human opportunity beautiful yeah so you get those two now and then that was what i came from which was over here somewhere so far away but it didn't recognize either i think i'm 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 with you there like that we're, we're seeing more and more research anyway just around depression being a lack of connection right living in cities isolation technology sitting a lot not moving like these lifestyle factors that are just you know ordering in like there's the the world of convenience is kind of um right impacts depression and anxiety also it comes in lots of different forms my first wife died of leukemia um some years she was only 29 and my form of getting out of that it took me years um, was in the bottom of a whiskey bottle. I went to live in LA, yeah. and uh, I didn't want to live particularly, but I did because I'd been still, you know, energized by Bill Kerr ten years previous. So I just lived in the bottom of a whiskey bottle and did drugs and stuff, and that took away the pain. And then I came back and rebuilt my my life and met my current wife Janine, and that's all lovely. And then fast forward to three years ago, and Janine gets diagnosed with breast cancer. And I'm like, really? So by this time, I'd lost my mom, my dad, my first wife to cancer, and now my fourth episode. So I found that for the very first time, bear in mind, this was particularly strong over the incidents I've told you about. I've, I've been built up. I really wobbled. I really wobbled. And I found it astonishingly bad that there were moments, Petra, when I really wanted help. I wanted to be strong for Janine. She was brilliant. And by the way, she's she's um, she's all clear now. Oh, she's, amazing. The, the treatment worked. And partic- with her particular cancer, they've given her a, a long life prognosis um, because the cancer was so badly beaten. She's completely clear everywhere. And that particular one was quite aggressive, and it either comes back very quickly, aggressively angry, or it's a schoolboy bully and it's gone away. And that's where all the oncologists feel that she's in a really good place because everything's all showing negative, negative, negative all the time, which is great. So anyway, but during the year of treatment, I was trying to do what I, whatever I could to be supportive. And there were times when I thought, I'm, I'm really struggling. I'm really really struggling. I had a lunch with Stella one day and I, I talked talked it all through quite intimately with her because uh, she was one of the very few people that I talked to. And I tried to get help and honestly Petra, it was shit. What kind of help? I phoned a number of people that were recommended. Like somebody, a friend of mine gave me a list of um, mental well-being support in Hertfordshire is where I live. So a counsellor or something like that? Yeah, a counselling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all I want. Just wanted just wanted help about me, what happens next. And you know, how because I was always trying to be very strong for the kids and mum's gonna be fine and anyway, all of that stuff. So 
And the kids were great, by the way. They were really supportive of, of us both. Um, and not one of those helped. I, first of all, I, I, I phoned about 10 of them. None of them could see me. They were booked up for like a year. I mean, that's really and this helpful. was private help. Is that right? This was private help. Yeah, £60 an hour, £70 an hour, whatever it was. Yeah. Couldn't get, couldn't get any, any help. And then I, I did find two. One was lovely and sweet and asked me to talk to her. And I talked for the first hour and I didn't get anything back. And I made another appointment the following week and I talked to her again. And I said, you know, halfway through, I said, look, okay, I've talked to you now for like an hour and a half. I, you know, I normally get paid quite highly for doing that. <laughs> um, but I'm paying you and I'm getting nothing back. Um, I need the tools of the guidance of it. And, and, and she said, no, oh, no, this is all about talking it out, talking it out. And I thought, oh, this is a waste of freaking time. This is so, so I gave up on, on her. And the other one was just obnoxious. It was like, you know, that's your, that's your life pattern. And, you know, you have to come to terms with it and come and talk to me. And, uh, you know, and, and yes, you, you should meditate more. You should do that. And I just thought, this is just crap. So I have a very jaundiced view of mental what, health support. What do you think? I know it's out there. What do you think you were looking for, if you don't mind me asking? I think I was, I think I was looking for something like a kind Bill Kerr, someone who, who was ag aggressive, not aggressive, but straight, gave forward. me strength, gave me strength, but also put their arm around me. And I just, I wanted a shoulder to cry on for a moment because I couldn't, I wouldn't shed a tear in front of anyone else. Uh, I wanted somebody who understood, perhaps had been in that position and could say, you know, when you get these moments, here's what you should do. I still don't know what I should do. Nobody ever told me what I should do. You know, I found out myself. And as the results for Janine got better and better, my whole spirit got warmer and warmer again as opposed to being ice cold and scared um so yeah i just i i'm disappointed that the system couldn't help it may just be me maybe i'm just awkward but, it is well you know, let it, me it, let me so it isn't just you um i think many people report that kind of challenge right and it's all it's no it's not knowing how to navigate the mental health system i think that's a very good expression how do you navigate the mental health system? And sadly, I can't comment on that. I, maybe you can talk to me and tell me the way of doing it. But we talk about it a lot, but I don't know how good the system is. Well, it I think there, there's so many varied types of counseling. So it sounds like what you had was person-centered at first, which was like that listening and just, you know, allowing you to do the work essentially with a witness. Um, the other one sounds a bit more psychotherapeutic, so looking at past patterns. Uh, and, you know, what you may have needed was a grief specialist or um, a solution-focused therapy, but nobody knows that what to ask for, right? Or to kind of go, are you solution focused? Like, are you going to help me with skills and guidance? Or are you just going to listen? Like, those are the questions to kind of well, I would have liked, I would have liked you in my world at that time. So somebody who I could call and say, Petra, where do I go? What do I do? Because as someone who was looking for mental health support, and I'm not one that normally does, so it would have been a big deal for you to even pick up the phone. Correct. But it was an extraordinary set of circumstances. And I really wanted to, but uh, I guess I'm no different from a lot of people looking for help. Uh, or yeah, I was looking for help. What's your, um, but the system wasn't there. I needed to, excuse me, putting you on a, on a platform. I needed a Petra to guide me through and I didn't, have that and couldn't find you. Where were you when I needed you? But I know you, you weren't, you weren't around. Or I didn't know you, but you know. So that's the thing that worries me about the system. If I've got a um, a young person in my life and I would like to advise them, where do I tell them to go? Well, you know, I put their arm around them and say, you know, I've been there, buddy. I know how you feel. You know, here's a few thoughts. 
but where's the professional? Where's the guide? Where's the where's the route map? So I would advise people to take so more agency over their mental health. And there's people we can learn from. So it's that resilience piece. Like how do we take responsibility for our lifestyle and the things that are in our control? Um, as well as in when you're calling up counselors, asking some of these questions to try and navigate what to expect. It's a really good question. And and for you, I'm thinking, um, you know, there were some triggers there of previous bereavement, right? Um, and trying to manage a whole story. So that context would have been important, as well as it sounds like what you were looking for was when I'm in those crisis moments, how do I be strong for others? How do I manage in the small moments, as well as knowing the kind of wider context? Is that fair? Yeah, I think it was all of that. You know, I, I just wanted somebody to, I guess, start to just share the load that I felt like, you know, the, the whole, I mean, I wasn't going through it. The chemo that Jimmy went through was brutal to get rid of this beast. And she was going through it and she was managing it. And, you know, it was, it was really difficult. You know, we, I'd sit down with the kids and sometimes they'd say, that's really difficult looking at mum at the moment, isn't it? And, you know, how do you answer that? You know, we're all, I'm trying to be the strong one and, and then thinking in the back of my head, what happens if she dies now? And trying to say to them, she's going to be fine. It's all going to be good. This is a piece of shit, but it's going to be okay. And, you know, let's go out and have a drink and we'll figure it out. Um, and then when all that was, and the kids were really strong and Janine was great. And then, you know, she, when she reemerged after the, I used to call her my rag doll after each session, she'd be like a little rag doll, you know have to help her up the stairs and this was a really vibrant young beautiful woman she's 10 years younger than me and she's blossomed now she's come back and you know, all her hair's come back and she's like really vibrant she's that person again but that's a three four year journey so very difficult there was certainly so many different times you know managing the news managing the process managing the pain and suffering of the process and managing the rebirth and then even as, without being, you know, too, too intimate about it, how do you re-engender a marriage? How do you do the things that you do in a marriage, you know, and how do you regrow that again? And I used to, there was a time, there were times when she was really ill, ill, and I didn't even want to give her a hug because... Because I wanted to give her a hug and give her all the love I could and get some love back. But I didn't want to get too close in case I lost her again. Right. You're protecting your own heart and your own Trying own to protect my... Yeah, because, you know, because I lost Lee and, and it was difficult. So in, in Janine's case, she's come through and we came through all that. But there was nobody to talk to. And I've told you more in the last three minutes than I, than I told anyone who's trying to help me. This, does, this just brings me to the topic of um, men's mental health, particularly, um, you know, that notion of needing to be strong for others and not creating space for self. And of course, you've worked in the sports industry and with managers and, you know, that, that that's a whole other layer. And I'm curious your thoughts just around men's mental health, because there's you kind of supporting the family, um, completely struggling, being triggered, and perhaps not having a support network, even outside of the more professional counselor side of things. I mean, what are your thoughts just on asking for help in that sense? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I mentioned, just to finish that bit on uh, Janine, you know, she was great, and she gave us the mental strength to give back in a way. Got it. But the kids and I kind of just gave each other everything. And so it was a really strong unit all working together. And ultimately we've all come through and life is back to inverted commas normal again now, because you know, you never forget it, but it's, it's, it's there, but it's, you know, it's a new life and life is good. And 
the marriage and the and we and our kids have got married now in the last year both of them got married so it's it's it's, it's been a lovely time and we've become grandparents amazing so, congratulations um, all of that was lovely um and a real blessing and you really do appreciate it and you know, being a being a happy married couple with grandchildren now just yeah it's a real blessing so i'm you know very grateful to the universe and its strength so going back to the more pertinent issues i guess of where i work one a prime example of something that worries me a lot and there is no support so in the football world the big clubs all the clubs sign kids from a very early age so you can be signed from eight nine ten years of age so you say you're a manchester kid and you're Someone spots you at the school, says to somebody, to one of the Manchester United scouts, of which there are many, oh, this kid's really great, and, and he goes into the junior team. Now he's playing for Manchester United, and he's eight or ten years old, twelve years old, and he's, you know, he's in school. He's a frigging hero now, because, you know, that kid plays for Man United. You know, he's going to be, he's going to be the next, I think George Best is probably too old to know. Um, I was going to say Ryan Giggs, uh, no, 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 that's probably not the best no. one. But anyway. <laughs> They're going to, going to be going to, it's going to be a big superstar, and 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 your persona is built up in school, and it's wonderful, and everything, everything else. Then they cut at ages fourteen, sixteen. So he gets to fourteen, and Man United say no, it's been great, you're a lovely kid, but no thanks, not for us. And you walk out of that meeting, and it's only done in a meeting, and your world has disappeared. At 14, 15, you know, God, you, you're coming to terms with your own sexuality in that, 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 that period of your life. Your own puberty, your own... It's huge. You know, you're, it's absolutely massive. And there's no, Petra, there is no mental health support. You go home and you say to mum and dad, I'm really sorry, but I've, I've been blown out. Is that and even now that there just wouldn't be yes, anything? even now. There's nothing there. And that's damaging forever. You've got to be strong mentally to come through that. And, you know, so there's much in sporting life. Fast forward to you're now a 19-year-old player. And you're a big, you're getting to be a big star. You're in the first team, performing really well. And you get a critical injury. And you're never quite the same player again. Now you're getting a bit of crowd abuse. Mm. Now you now that all those star-studded pathways that were open to you are actually open to you because you're not that player anymore. Um, Your whole identity that you thought you were working towards is completely uh, obliterated, and you've got to yeah. reinvent yourself. So the, at that point, though, there is mental health support at, at football clubs, but don't forget that mental health support is dealing with all the pros and everything else as well so you're just part of that and you do get help but there's not really where do you go and seek that when you leave the football club that day that month you've got to find your own support and that's difficult because that's a really specialized piece of mental health and those as, as much as we're aware of it petra we talk about it the actual as, as i said 10 minutes ago, the actual help pathway is not there. Somehow it's just not there yet. And I'd like it to be, and I think it's getting there, but I think we've got to do more than talk about it. And, and I think, at, like we said, people are looking for a little bit more challenge and education. And I think this kind of sitting back approach to be like, you know, just tell me your troubles and, you know, we'll sit here for a minute and feel comforted um, is, is we're moving past that. And for me, it's about personal responsibility. Like when I was in a complete victim mindset off the back of being raised in a cult, depression, addiction, you know, I needed someone to say it's possible to build a different life. It's possible yeah. for you to create change. And so it was when I took responsibility and, and didn't you, you know, stop blaming, like I didn't go to school as a kid, I didn't have the right cards, like all the different traumas and things that had happened. That's when my life started to change, when I took radical responsibility for it. So I would like to see more therapists and coaches challenging 
what is in your control, what is behavior change, and here's some science around mental health, uh, around depression, anxiety, burnout is the big buzzword at the moment. Like, what are the lifestyle and mindset shifts that would enable you to live a much better life, right? So, the, like, that's the challenge that I think I'd like to more people to to know about when it comes to the mental health space. You kind of summed it all up very well because. It's a bit going back, way back to what the early part of the conversation. This lady that I did see, she said, well, this is what, this is what my consultation is all about. It's all about listening and being there for you. And I'm thinking, oh, really? It's it really, it's a bit like somebody giving me a prescription with paracetamol. You know, it's, it, the pain goes beyond that. So I think w- what you've just summed up is really accurate. We've, we've recognized it over the last 10 years, which is great. Now we've got to manufacture the, the real support and not just, oh, yeah, you know, I, I get it. I understand it. Poor you, you know, but you'll be all right. You know, the sun will shine and book a nice holiday. Yeah. And, you know, take a break. Whatever. Take a break, yeah. So, no, you know, I want someone to get into my head and, and say, okay, you're injured. You're not going to be that person anymore. Difficult to come to terms with. But here's all the opportunities that you and yourself can develop. I can't tell you, you know, which football club around the world might want you now. But what I can do is I can put you, I put your mind in a place where it's in sync with your body so you know that there's a pathway that is made for you. That's what people want, I think. Well, not and just not brand, I, get built. Yeah. So I just, I think we're pathologizing normal human emotion. So that is like a natural disappointment from an extreme set of circumstances, right? And normalizing that rather than diagnosing it is actually the more useful support, I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, if we go to the story of the little 14, 13, 15 year old kid who's axed by Arsenal, you know, sit down with him or her and and say, you know, look what you've achieved. Look what look what the calling card says. You know, look look where you can go with your calling card. You know, yeah, okay, you're not gonna at least for today, you're not gonna be paid hundred thousand pounds a week and play for Arsenal. But that's not to say you won't play for another club or you won't do this or that. Don't give up. Or also use those experiences to achieve what you can in, in your life by by taking all that you've got in your calling card that you played for Arsenal and everything else, it's a positive in life that a lot of kids down here don't have. So it's giving them, giving people, as you say, don't pathologize it. You, you have to action it. And that's where I think there's still a big gap in mental well being support in the world today or certainly the British world today. When I do a big TV show, if I do like a news night or something like that, where, you know, you're going to get proper time. You're going to be questioned, you know, forensically. Sure. I go into the, there's always a little green room or somewhere where, you know, everyone gathers before. I do that. Then I disappear into the toilets for about five minutes beforehand. And I, and I get my head into my place where Bill Kerr said, you are, and he used this language. He said, you are fucking great. You are really good. And, just whenever they come at you, pause and dictate the circumstances. Just pause for a second and get your head. And, and I took that into negotiating tactics as well. If I could not, if I'm in a big negotiating session, I have been with some of the biggest names in the world, like Roman Abramovich and, and when he was at Chelsea and people like that. Um, and I couldn't answer the questions. I always keep a little briefcase. I know briefcases are not fashionable these days, a little bag now. Sure. Um, and I and I go, oh yes, excuse me a minute. I just wanna I just wanna get something. I haven't got anything in the bag. I'm just using that time, buying myself a big pause to answer that that question. Just the best advice, um, unless it's an instant question you're getting on, on, on a TV show, okay, give us give us your answer now, but you still gotta remain calm. Normally in everyday life, just be calm and pause. You can control your environment, unless you're in a burning building, in which case get the fuck out. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Just, you know, in everyday life, you are in control. You, you can put yourself in control of every circumstance. 
with physical exceptions. But, and that's the, it, it's a bit arbitrary, but that's the advice I would give. You can be in control yourself in any environment. Beautiful. Well, what I'm- It's quite, quite poor, pause, yeah. pause is the biggest word. And what I'm hearing is, there's things you can take control of. Um, it's also a skill. So it takes practice to pause and feel that fear element first. Not everyone has a Bill Kerr, right? Um, so you may feel the fear, but taking that practice to do it anyway allows you to control the narrative rather than it to control you, I guess. Absolutely right. And, 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 the, and there's an easy way of doing, taking the first step. One day, Petra, in the coming weeks, you and everyone else will have someone confront them. Maybe in a shop, you may have a, you may have a argy bargy with another customer. That something in your life will become confrontational because life gets that way. Instead of reacting, just pause for a second. That puts you in control of the situation and allows you to sum it up. It's amazing how quick the brain sums it up in split seconds. So that second or second and a half, two seconds, normally puts you in control. Learn to respond rather than react. Beautiful. John, thank Correct. you so much for your time. I do feel like I could talk to you uh, all day. Uh, where can people find you if they want to get you speaking for them or, or getting involved with, with um, what they're up to? Yeah, I've got a website called uh, johnsmith.co. Um, johnsmith.co, and it's J-O-N, right? Rather than J-O-N. Yep, J-O-N. And very happy to answer anyone's thoughts, questions on uh John, J-O-N, at J-S, which is John Smith. John at J-S Consulting dot London. Amazing. John, thank you so much for your time. It's been, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you got loads of ideas on how you can be the change and disrupt well-being in your world and your workplace. If you want to hear any more about our guests or the resources we mentioned, check out our show notes. And of course, find your workplace benefits at perks.com and all your strategy or training needs at petrabelzebor.com. I'm so excited for future conversations. Please do join us for the next episode of Disrupting Wellbeing with massively interesting conversations and guests who will give you practical ideas to be the change you want to see in the world. See you next time.